Hello and welcome to the Energy Efficiency Podcast, sponsored by EcoFlap Home Draft Proofing Products, the ideal fit and forget energy efficiency solutions, including the Pet Flap Draft Proof Pet Door. My name is Heather Lindsay and I'm the Communications Manager for EcoFlap. This weekly podcast will bring you a mix of news, products and tips all year round. We're interested in profiling people and products involved in promoting energy efficiency habits, products and information, so please do get in touch if you have something to contribute. You can reach me at heather at ecoflap.co.uk. This week, energy efficiency in shipping freight, participatory budgets and the UK's new environment bill. But first... The Guardian reported this week on plans to create virtual batteries out of disused mine shafts. Known as gravity energy, this works by winching weights to the top of a shaft and then dropping them down hundreds of metres. This generates electricity in a similar way to hydropower plants. The plan is to winch the weights to the top at times of abundant renewable energy, then drop the weights at variable rates so that electricity can be produced over a longer or shorter period as it's needed. The system is being developed by Edinburgh startup Gravitricity. Using Britain's now disused mine shafts to create energy in this way would cost about half of using lithium-ion batteries, which makes it very competitive. The infrastructure is reusable over and over and over without any loss of performance. Gravitricity is talking to mine owners worldwide. In South Africa, mine shafts can be up to two kilometres deep, so the potential to create clean energy with this method is huge. At full scale, the plant would drop 24 weights with a total weight of 12,000 tonnes down a drop of 800 metres. That would produce enough electricity to power 63,000 homes for over an hour. But releasing the weights at a slower speed would release the power over a longer period. Gravitricity wanted an independent analysis of its proposals. So last year it approached Oliver Schmidt, a research postgraduate at Imperial College London. There's a link in the notes to download a copy of the resulting report. Freight has a bad reputation. Worldwide, it makes a significant contribution to carbon emissions, and locally it can cause pollution hotspots. As is so often the case, there is huge scope to reduce emissions, but it requires a joint approach from industry and government to make sure that lack of infrastructure doesn't prove to be a barrier. This can mean macro-scale power delivery for, for instance, HGV charging, but also decisive leadership on zero-emissions rail travel, for instance, something that is already a hot potato with the ongoing rail electrification debate. Shipping and aviation rack up roughly equivalent levels of emissions, and we've looked at aviation in previous episode. Shipping moves about 80% of the world's goods, and although moving goods in this way is the least emissions-intensive method, demand for it is rising. This will lead to enormous increases in carbon emissions if things stay as they are, says the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Shipping freight is governed by the International Maritime Organisation. It's introduced targets to cut emissions by 2050 on the back of a reputation for having been extremely slow to take any action. Ship owners have also been slow to act. Many freight ships are old and inefficient and not set to be replaced anytime soon. 
The shipping industry as a whole hasn't been keen to share emissions data. And as such an international industry, countries haven't taken responsibility for shipping emissions either. So what can companies do today to reduce emissions? One option is to sail more slowly. This would cut emissions by a third. It's not always commercially viable though. It's one thing if you're transporting trainers and sofas, another if it's lettuces and medicines. It's not a long-term solution, but it could be implemented where feasible to cut emissions in the short term. A report from non-profit organisation A Sea Change identifies the Danish companies Maersk and Norden and South Korean company HMM as at the forefront of reducing their impact. There remains, though, a stubborn gap between what technology can offer and what companies are putting into practice. And technology is key to transforming the industry. Ships are very expensive to make and buy and run for about 30 years. So to meet targets by 2050, ships based on new cleaner technologies need to be entering service in 10 years time. And 10 years isn't very long to develop and install new fuels, means of propulsion and infrastructures. However, the industry must change if it's to survive. Customers and customers' customers ask questions about the emissions involved in delivering their goods. Tankers carrying fossil fuels around the globe are seeing reduced demand for their haul. As well as sailing more slowly where possible, ships can be retrofitted to become more energy efficient while better long-term technologies are being developed. Engines can be replaced to facilitate slower speeds and new propellers are more energy efficient. Lower emissions fuels are in development but only on a small scale. Liquid natural gas could play a role as a transition fuel as ships make the transition to clean fuels from the particularly dirty form of fuel that they use, which is known as bunker fuel. Bunker fuel is a byproduct of refining. Beyond that, electric boats now exist. They have a smaller range, but they do have a part to play. In the Netherlands and Belgium, 100% electric barges sail between the ports of Antwerp, Amsterdam and Rotterdam. The chief executive of the company behind the barges, Portliner, explained that it doesn't make sense to keep producing diesel-run barges. These barges each carry 24 containers and will eventually be autonomous, i.e. not crewed. It's estimated that they'll remove 23,000 freight trucks from the roads. Batteries have been viewed with suspicion by the shipping industry. In such a competitive business, anything that might slow you down or reduce capacity is unwelcome. However, Lucy Gilliam of non-governmental organisation Transport and Environment, based in Brussels, demolishes the myths around batteries, citing rapid change in the industry recently. She champions battery power for short journeys, such as the Dover to Calais route. On that journey, the required batteries would add only 1% to the weight of the ship. At the moment, electrical power is taxed more heavily than the more polluting fuels, something that needs to change at governmental level. That isn't putting off ferry operator Scandlines, however, which runs battery-diesel hybrids between Germany and Denmark. An electric car ferry, that's the ferry that's electric, not the cars, but then again, has been sailing from Norway since 2015. Lucy Gilliam describes the spread of electrification of these sorts of short routes as inevitable and believes it's just a matter of time until the technology extends to the wider shipping industry. To time, I think you can reasonably add investment, research and regulation.
But shipping powered in this way isn't the only option. Dutch company Fair Transport has revived transporting cargo under sail. Fair Transport works on a tiny scale, running only two ships, one a 70-year-old minesweeper called Tres Hombres, the other a 145-year-old wooden catch named Nordlies. German company Timbercoast operates a 1920 schooner and has a second being refitted. The principle is to add clean transport to concepts including organic produce and fair trade, and to encourage consumers to value it. The moment you stop to think about it, you see the hole in the argument that ships fair trade and or organic bananas on hideously polluting ships or aeroplanes. There are now several companies operating wind-powered vessels. Where older vessels were retrofitted initially, now larger vessels are under construction to scale up this form of freight and allow many more ships to operate. The largest sailing ship in the world, Sabre, is currently under construction in Costa Rica, but even that will carry only the equivalent of 10 shipping containers. The largest powered ships carry more than 20,000 containers, and even the Cutty Sark was bigger than Sabre. Cornelius Bockerman, founder of Timbercoast, makes the point that industrial shipping as we know it now is economical only because it externalises its costs. In an article in The Guardian, he explains that if shipping companies were liable for the costs of damage to the environment, sailing ship costs would seem very reasonable in comparison. Hello, Kevin. Hello. And this week we're talking about... Have you heard of participatory budgets? I have. It's when a proportion of a budget is set aside for the public to allocate. That's it in a nutshell. The idea is that the people of an area are best positioned to know where the money should be spent. It sounds progressive and fair, but does it work? Broadly, yes. Glasgow City Council announced a PB scheme last year. It's being monitored by the University of Glasgow to measure the impact. This is new to Glasgow, then? Yes. It's a pilot with £1 million to spend on four specific objectives, and it's focused on the four most deprived wards. It's got the support of people locally. Every local authority in Scotland has PB to a greater or lesser extent. And what about the rest of the UK? It's a well-kept secret that's been going on for years. It began in Brazil in the 1980s, and it was introduced here in the early 2000s. But unless you live in an area where it's ongoing, you won't hear a word about it. What was the catalyst for it in Brazil? The most deprived areas had lost trust in the national government. Giving those communities a portion of the budget to spend on the projects they prioritised was partly an exercise to increase trust in the government. Did it work? Not overnight, and it's an area that's still under examination as PBs are adopted around the world, but it does seem to work to an extent. Sounds complex. Uh, I suppose with more people distrustful of governments, they might want to get involved to influence things their way. Yes, it has the potential to be a win-win to encourage engagement, both from people who are always the first to leap at the opportunity and those who've historically considered it's not for them. And it's not just governments and local authorities that can benefit from it. Organisations such as housing associations and schools can use PB to give the people they look after a feeling of influence over their environments. Vital part of being human is being heard. 
rather than being spoken down to by our government. And often it's the first time people have engaged with what you might loosely call local politics, perhaps local issues is a better phrase. According to Shared Future, a community interest company that specialises in supporting PB, running a local PB event often attracts a great many people who wouldn't normally engage with this sort of thing. Do energy efficiency projects figure much at a community level? It depends who you ask. The Portuguese city of Cascais has a budget to allocate to selected ideas that have been put forward by students through their schools, but young people can also make suggestions through the mainstream PB system, so this runs uh, alongside uh, the main PB system. Three projects have won funding recently, one of which is fitting solar charging sockets in Wi-Fi-enabled bus shelters, which shows you A, young people rely on public transport, and B, they prioritise having lots of charge on their phones. They also dreamt up so-called social benches where they can congregate and uh, charge their phones. Charge their phones. PB is certainly attractive to people who want to see more money spent on tackling climate change. That's brilliant. What form does that take? In some cases, just supporting what the New Deal proposes, but at the macro level of really seeing things done in the streets where they live. So that could be retrofitting homes to be more energy efficient and developing green energy locally, like we were looking at in Wales recently, just to name a couple of lines of attack. And what about transport? In Paris, cycling infrastructure was improved comprehensively, including little things like having pumps available in public spaces in case you get a flat, but also things that make an enormous difference, such as redesigning junctions and signage to make them more bike friendly. Participatory budget really got going in Paris in 2014 when Anne Hidalgo was elected mayor, but it had been operating on a very small and local scale prior to that in some areas of the city. Projects initially were put to the inhabitants of Paris for voting on, which incidentally was the biggest vote ever to have an online voting option. I also heard recently of schemes where traffic lights were synchronised to cycling speed, so on a major route you could get green lights all the way. Anyway, was the Paris vote popular? 60% of votes were cast online. What are the options this year? Ways of travelling that combat pollution and increasing environmentally friendly habits. These both feature highly in the project suggested for Paris. There have been requests for planting trees and other plants and creating urban farms. A school wants to build a green wall. There's a suggestion for street lamps that store solar energy during the day to light the streets at night. And one thing that's quite cool about these is they sort of emit a dim light most of the time. But when people get within 30 metres, that light automatically gets brighter. So you don't have this rather binary thing that always gets put forward with um, this these sorts of lighting systems when they're proposed here. That, oh, it's going to be dark all the time, you know, unless someone comes near. Well, it won't with this. There'll be this continual low-level illumination, but then much brighter when someone's nearby. There are plans for improved recycling infrastructure and education. One project wants to distribute energy-saving kits to households suffering from fuel poverty and to identify buildings such as data centres that could redistribute the heat they generate to heat public facilities and housing. Some of it requires proper buy-in then from the city authority. We're not just talking leaflets and bike racks. Oh, far from it. Inevitably, similar ideas will come up, so the council will approach the people who've made those suggestions to see if they could be blended into one idea, and similarly, engineers look at projects to see what could be brought together into one project.
Around the world, these projects that affect things very locally are being funded by PB. In areas of Toronto in Canada, energy-efficient LED lighting has been fitted to streetlights and water bottle filling stations installed. Interestingly, in a few places, these are replacing broken water fountains. So where there was no public water facility and the council hadn't prioritised mending the fountain, instead now you've got refilling stations. So it's, it's really and truly solved a problem. Uh, somewhere else in uh, Toronto, bike parking and lockers have been fitted at a station so that people can now cycle to the station and know that they can store their bike securely. So it's great. You can have all the cycling infrastructure or all the education in the world. But if you can't store your bike effectively when you get to the station, it's again, it's that business of, you know, you can put 90% of the solution in place, but that last 10% can be stubborn. So because the PB takes the local concerns, whoever's managing it now knows, right, this is the little thing that will make a difference. Yes, these little things that make a difference locally. Well, exactly. And they flag up issues that are important locally, but that politicians wouldn't consider as important in a million years. And, you know, by and large, it's the small things that you stumble over every day that impact your quality of life easily as much as the big things. Huh. Results seem to show that local people want to be able to leave the car at home, breathe cleaner air and enjoy more trees and plants around them. Yes, environmental projects come up again and again around the world, from Paris to Poznan, especially in more developed and urbanised areas, because in these places, basic issues such as sanitation and the supply of water and power are already established. You know, in some other areas, these are attracting uh, attention with PB. If your French is good enough, and if you're interested, you can follow the link and read the list of current projects that are available for voting on in Paris. Last week, the UK government tabled its new Environment Bill. On the basis that the UK leaves the EU, a new Office for Environmental Protection will be established to ensure that the UK complies with environmental standards. The bill will bring the polluter pays principle into law and set legally binding targets for improvement in areas such as air quality. We looked at the air quality grant scheme last week. The UK government has consistently failed to meet EU air quality rules. There's no detail yet on what the new standards will be or how they would be applied. The UK government believes that its new air quality target would be, quote, among the most ambitious in the world, ends. This might be because while removing local authorities' powers to impose strict new build standards, the government will give councils more power to tackle air pollution. Developers will be obliged to abide by biodiversity regulations to protect existing habitats or to pay to restore land somewhere else to compensate. They will have to prove that they've delivered overall a 10% boost in nature. Charges will be applied to some single-use plastics and producers will be held liable for the costs of disposing of their packaging. EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility, will be extended under the bill. There will be a more consistent approach to recycling throughout the country, which is very much needed, and a deposit return scheme. Interestingly, there's a proposal for labelling that makes it clear to consumers which products are the most durable, repairable and recyclable. The government describes the bill as a step change and leading a green transformation. It believes the UK will become, quote, a world leader on improving air quality, environmental biodiversity, a more circular economy and managing our precious water resources, ends.
Interestingly, given what we've just been talking about, the bill includes measures to give communities a greater say in the protection of local trees. This follows a few high-profile cases where trees were marked for demolition or in some cases were severely pruned or indeed demolished because of development. The bill will come under close examination from environmental experts wanting to check that the OEP will have sufficient funding and authority if business or the government don't want to play ball. Criticism extends to the OEP being understaffed and a little powerless and that possible funding from DEFRA will set up a conflict of interest. Greenpeace believes it has identified a loophole that would give the government nearly 20 years before being legally required to meet any of the targets it's set. Clarification is needed on how the OEP will interact with other environmental care agencies, such as the Environment Agency, and whether it can cope with the workload that will land on it from EU agencies. The Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment describes the bill as a welcome step and, quote, a good baseline, but expects to work with the government to make improvements as the bill goes through the Commons and then the Lords. Passing this bill is no foregone conclusion, despite environmental legislation tending to gain cross-party support. However, there is still government support for fracking, blocking onshore wind power, cutting support for home insulation and solar installations, and extending England's airport capacity. Perhaps it's this that has earned it a rebuke from the CCC that it's not moving fast enough. Are you in Leith and a business charter member? If so, get yourself along to the Leith Business Breakfast next Tuesday, 29th of October, to talk Zero Waste Leith. Quote, At the event, you will hear inspiring stories from some of our charter members who have embraced zero waste, have the chance to speak to our energy and waste experts who will be on hand to advise you, and meet other Leithers who share your ethos. It's free and there's still time to register and to join the Zero Waste Leith Business Charter. Link in the show notes. And what are we up to? We'll have new cut parts very soon, with pet flaps available late October, early November. Half the new batch are reserved already, so drop us a line at info at ecoflap.co.uk to reserve yours. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of the Energy Efficiency Podcast. Until next time, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram as Ecoflap, and on Twitter we also tweet as the Pet Flap. Next week, Energy Efficiency in Theatre energy as an investment, and the Scottish Government's switched-on towns and cities scheme. And remember, you can eat that pumpkin flesh.